In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well on in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. This is the word of Jesus. Over to Josh. Thanks be to God. Wonderful. Hello again. How are we all doing? Good. Okay. There's, there's, a, there's a bit of ambiguity and ambivalence as to whether we are doing well, but... Someone seems to be out there, which is always good. Wonderful. I, we have one person. We can, we can work with that as an encouragement. This passage will be read by churches across the country uh, because it is a passage read out during Advent. So read out in the season of preparation as we look towards Christmas, as we remember... Uh, with the historic church, what it is like to wait for the birth of Jesus, and also wait uh, with the church eternal for the second coming of Christ. So it is a passage that a lot of people are reflecting on, and I thought it worth just dwelling on what I found to be a particularly strange bit of a very strange passage, which is the particular interaction towards the end between uh, Zechariah and Gabriel, because I think Zechariah asks an odd question, and a question that surprises me in some ways, but also then Gabriel responds to him in a way which is also very strange, and I think hopefully by dwelling on why particularly kind of 
I, know, I mean, you, you might not find it strange. I'll explain the reasons why I find it strange. Dwelling on the strangeness, there might be stuff in there that God has for us. There might be stuff that people find helpful. So, as Luke is writing in the, um, the kind of historiographical uh, tradition, so he's writing as, as many contemporary historians would write, uh, he starts off with some context. So he starts off with the day, and he says, in the days of Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Then we get Zechariah's credentials. So we get the fact that he's from a priestly order, uh, so he knows his stuff. Uh, we get, we get, uh, we're told that his wife is also from the order of Aaron, so it kind of sits in that lineage of the past of the tribes of Israel. And they are both uh, obedient to God. So it doesn't mean they're perfect, but they, are, they, they worship God and they're kind of, they direct their hearts towards God. So we hear all that. And then, when he actually, and, and then we hear this exchange of him going into uh, the temple of the Lord and Gabriel greeting him and saying, you're going to have a son, he's going to be called John, uh, he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, he's... Uh, going to do this, this, and this, and this. And then what I find strange is that Zachariah's immediate response is, well, how will I know? How, how can I be sure? Because that seems odd, given the fact that we are told that Zachariah is, uh, is someone who worships God, but is also someone who has been trained in the traditions of the Jewish people, of the priesthood, so knows his Torah, knows the stories that came before, and for someone who knows the stories, the idea of God uh, making someone who previously wasn't able to conceive fertile, even when they were very old, that's one of the oldies. That's something they did right at the beginning of the tradition. So why is it surprising? Why is it that Zechariah, who is someone who no doubt knows these stories, who knows the story of Abraham and Sarah, why is it that he asks this question? Why is it he says, how will I know? How can I be sure? And I think part of the answer lies in the fact that whilst he knows that story, him and the people of Israel that he's representing in by going into the inner place have been living and inhabiting a much more powerful story or much more visceral story for a longer time. So it's been 400 years since the last prophet spoke. So it's 400 years of silence. It, during that time, the people of God have become uh, slaves in empire, have become colonies in various different empires, and now they are uh, part of the Roman Empire. So instead of the story of uh, God's salvation work, God's saving work through uh, the nation of Israel, the actual most visceral story that Zechariah is living in is a story of experience, is a story of empire, is a story of oppression. The story of pessimism. So when something breaks through, when Gabriel comes to him and says, this is going to happen, something good's going to happen, something pivotal, something that speaks to that messianic tradition that you've learned about, the question is, well, how do I know? Because that doesn't chime with the experience of what I've come to expect. Because what Zachariah is doing is he is bringing his expectations formed from outside the sanctuary in there, and he is, his expectations formed by the world, and he's projecting them onto God, rather than the other way around. And this might sound surprising, but I think, particularly in this year of years, I can empathize, because this has been, in so many ways, a grim year. We still have 
a refugee crisis, which nothing meaningful seems to have been done on. We st- uh, uh, connect to that. We still have atrocities being committed in Syria and Iraq. On top of that, we have the rise of far-right populism across Western Europe and in America. And it just seems like that's what we've come to expect. That's what we're used to. I woke up on the 9th of November to kind of check the US election results. And I woke up at half four because I had stayed up, so to kind of give away my politics, I'd stayed up for the 2015 general election and not been happy. I'd stayed up for Brexit and not been happy. So I thought, well, I think Hillary's going to win. So I will go, go to bed and... You know, if I wake up sad, then that's fine, but I'm not going to wake up, I'm not going to stay through the night to just be uh, moody and, and to get the kind of righteous anger at half four when I can do nothing with it. Uh, but I woke up at half four to check the results, and when it became clear that Trump had, was going to win, I searched for a very specific concrete prayer that I could pray. Uh, I'm spending this year learning about community organizing and that kind of the whole methodology and that is searching for the winnable ask, the kind of concrete thing that you can identify, the winnable issue. So I, so I found, my concrete issue, found my concrete ask, and the closest I got was just praying, come Lord Jesus, come back now, please. Because it has been a grim year. And I wonder, what story are we bringing to God in that? Are we bringing the story that we experience, the story that we inhabit, and projecting that onto church? Or are we learning a different story in church and then projecting that onto the world? Are we allowing that to shape our experiences? Because there do seem to be two different kinds of knowledge in this regard. Because Zechariah knew lots of things about Israel's history and the prophecies and the prophets. But actually the story he inhabited on a day-to-day basis, the story he, he viscerally lived, was a different one. So, for example, you know, if, if you talk to one of the kids uh, in this church and ask them to navigate you around uh, Hoxton and said, can you, give, can you give me directions to this particular street? Uh, say if you're talking to a four-year-old, they probably wouldn't know. But if you said, please tell me the direction to school, they would know that. Because the directions of the places and the, and the streets, not the street names, but the pla- that those, those are the stories they inhabit. So those are stories that they actually live in and they understand and they know at a deeper level, was actually the kind of head knowledge stuff. You know, that doesn't engage. Uh, that, that isn't the most powerful form of knowledge. And what we're seeing in this interaction is Zachariah speaking out of that kind of gut knowledge of, actually, this is what I've lived, and this is painful, rather than the, the knowledge which perhaps has been kind of relegated to a kind of head knowledge, something that he, he knows on a kind of academic level, but doesn't actually inhabit, doesn't actually experience and I suppose the question then is, what do we do with that? What stories are we bringing into the, What ways are our expectations going? Are we allowing our imagination to be formed by the practices and the things that we are experiencing outside of church and then coming into church with our expectations of what we expect God to do? Or is this a place where actually our imaginations are being fired up, where we are learning new ways of doing things, where we are having new experiences, where we are encountering God, such that we go out, inside out, and expect to find God out there. Expect to find God in other people. And I think that's really difficult. But I think fundamentally, 
I think one of the pictures of church should be that place where, you know, that kind of imagination factory where we're actually taught to and we learn the practices that shape us to imagine a world out there, to imagine what it might be. So Zachariah asks that question of how will I know out of that deep, visceral expectation that things won't get better, out of a pessimism. But then Gabriel's response is just as perplexing. Because notice what he says is, (laughs) Zachariah says, how will I know? Gabriel says, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. Now, there are non sequiturs and then there are non sequiturs. That just doesn't seem to follow. That doesn't answer the question. But again, it seems that what Gabriel has done is diagnosed that the issue isn't one of head knowledge, but is one of experience. So what Gabriel does is say, I am Gabriel. So actually, what, in doing that, he says, I'm Gabriel, the same Gabriel that spoke to Daniel and explains uh, the prophecies that Daniel experienced. So he says, you know, he, he highlights, okay, we're dealing with this bigger story, the same story that you've known. Actually, you're now inhabiting that same story. Then he says, I stand in the presence of God. So he says, I've seen some stuff. He says, I've experienced this. This is how I know, because I I stand before God and I see what he's capable of. So he recognizes that actually, primarily the job isn't to persuade Zachariah, but it's primarily to invite him into that deeper story, to inhabit that deeper story. Because then, because what happens with Gabriel's experience is he says, I'm Gabriel, I stand, bef- stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent out to give you good news. The theologian Miroslav Volf distinguishes between two kinds of religion. He says, many religions are mystic religions, where the emphasis is going like, kind of up onto the mountaintop and experiencing God. And he says, what is different about Christianity is it is a prophetic religion. So, yes, we go up into the mountaintop and experience God, but crucially, we come down. So, we go out the door. So, this, the stuff that we can encounter here isn't an end, is on, on one level an end in itself, is on one level good in itself, but actually it pulls us and pushes us out to want to tell other people, to want to show other people, to want to change Hoxton, to want to change the world. So, that is the kind of story that Gabriel has inhabited. And I wonder, what does it look like for our evangelism, for our kind of interaction with one another, our collective discipleship, to be more like Gabriel, to share those stories of where we have stood in the presence of God, to share the experiences that we have, and to encourage each other in that, to stand as testimony of what God has done in our lives, to not hide the messy stuff, to not hide the hard stuff, but to be honest and say, you know, this is who I am not try and persuade someone, you know, I could, you know, if, if you want a kind of historical argument for the resurrection, I, I, I can go, you know, I, I can give it a blast, I can kind of run you through why I think that it's, it's historically plausible and all that stuff, and I think those, those kind of discussions are important, but those aren't the kind of discussions which are going to either call people into deeper discipleship or are going to convince people to step into relationship with Jesus for the first time. Actually, I think first and foremost as evangelists, we are called to do as Gabriel does and simply stand there and say, I'm Josh, I'm a sinner, I stand in the presence of God. This is what God has done in my life. So I'll leave with you that. Perhaps 
in, in, in a seeming non sequitur, is Gabriel speaking to you about how you interact with other Christians, about how you interact with non-Christians, and the kind of things, the kind of stories that you want to tell about your own life? I think that uh, one lovely way that a church I know of, that a church in Walthamstow is doing this Advent, is they are doing a kind of... They are, they are doing an event for 24 days. So they're doing an advent calendar called, uh, where they are projecting pieces of art on St. Mary's Church. So this kind of 12th century church, they are projecting very, each day, each evening, they are projecting a different piece of art. And they're calling the event, Adventus, Another World is Possible. But that within that, the, the things they are projecting aren't all kind of nice, happy, clappy, this is what the world will be, will be like. But actually they are projecting stories of refugees and conflict, and they are saying, they are holding those two things in tension. They are saying, this is what the world is like, but another world is possible. So as we testify to Jesus, are we able, are we confident in him enough, do we trust him enough to hold the mess and to say, this is who I am, this is the messy stuff. But look what God has done. Look what God is doing. Look what God is going to do. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And actually, that's a lot, a lot of what's happening in communion is we are remembering so we can imagine. It's we are looking back to the, what Jesus spoke of and what Jesus did. And that is fueling our imagination for what will come in his second coming but also what can happen now, what we can do to renew our world now, you know, by and through his spirit. So then Gabriel's question gets, Gabriel's answer gets even weirder because he says, okay, you'll become mute because you didn't believe me. Now, I did say Zachariah's question seemed weird, but I don't think it quite deserved the you will now become mute because uh, I, I don't think it's that unreasonable a question. But nevertheless, Gabriel says, you'll become mute. And I think there's a question as to whether or not this is a punishment. I don't know. I'm not convinced it's a punishment. Uh, because I think it's primarily a gift. And I think it's primarily a gift because it's a gift for Zechariah, it's a gift for us. Because before we can be Gabriel, before we can evangelize like that, we've, had, we've got to journey with Zechariah. We've got to move to a place uh, where we are able to sing of that other story, to say in other words possible, to point to the coming of Christ. But it's interesting because after the, you know, when Zechariah eventually towards, uh, right at the end of chapter one, when he, when he finally kind of finds his voice again, what comes out is a song of praise, a song of prophecy, where he, where he talks about the whole sweep of scripture and he talks about the way in which God had worked for Abraham and David, but also of the coming Messiah. And he has been reorientated. He has seen the deeper story, the deepest story that he lives in. And he's encountered that, and he speaks of that, and he sings of that. So the question, obviously, that we're now asking is, well, how did he get there? How does it, is it just that he sits in a darkened room, and then he kind of has learned his lesson, he goes, oh, well, and you know, I better sing these songs so Gabriel doesn't get irritated and come back and make me mute again. So I kind of go along with that. Or actually, is something deeper going on here? Well, so I think there's a couple of things going on because I think that, first and foremost, silence and being forced to be silent 
is a remarkably difficult discipline, but it is one in which you become more aware of yourself. So in Forced to be Silent, Zachariah becomes aware of why he believes as he believes, why he's thinking as he thinks, and what might be different. And he realizes that he's not in control. The author and essayist, Marilyn Robinson, writes, we live on a little island of the articulatable that we tend to mistake for reality itself. We live on a little island of the articulatable which we tend to mistake for reality itself. So I think first and foremost what happens in silence is that we recognize that there is something beyond our words, that there is something else going on, and we can step into that. So there is a contemplation. He's being with himself. He's able to reflect on himself. But also, he listens to other voices. So if he had kept on going on, and kind of expressing his doubts, then he would have just been perpetuating that other story, that story of empire, that story of oppression, that story of pessimism, that story that says nothing else is going to get better. But instead, he is surrounded by other voices. He hears other voices. He is formed by them. So he's formed by Elizabeth, his wife, who in verse 25 says, This is what the Lord has done for me when he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured among my people. He is also formed when, after Gabriel visits Mary, Mary visits Elizabeth and sings what we now know as the Magnificat. So my, my soul magnifies the Lord. And she sings of all that God has done and will do. And I like to think that not only is Elizabeth hearing that, but maybe Zachariah's in the other room hearing that. What's interesting, incidentally, is the two, the two voices that Zachariah is exposed to before he, before he starts singing are both, are both women. Uh, I think there's something in that. I think there is something in the fact that these are women, one who has been barren and is old and has been cast off by society, and one who is young. There is something about that in silence, Zachariah, the learned priest, is forced to learn and be shaped by those on the margins, by those who God tends to work through. So the questions for us, therefore, are, are we building in rhythms of silence? Are we building in rhythms where we reflect on why we think as we do and how we are shaped as we do, where we realize that we're, we step into not being in control? But also, I suppose, the question is, who are we learning from? Who are we, allow, who are we listening to? Are we listening to people just like us? Or are we listening to the marginalized? Are we hearing their stories? So we have a strange question which speaks to the balance of expectancy and in, in what ways Zachariah's imagination has been orientated by 400 years of silence. We have a strange answer which testifies to Gabriel's experience of God and points perhaps to a way that we can begin to testify to God's presence in our own lives. And then we have a strange muteness, which rather than a punishment should be seen as a gift, and a gift which is readily available to us, annoyingly. Because ultimately, the child that, that they speak of here, 
John, would grow up to speak of another child, would grow up to prepare the way and make straight, make straight the paths for another, high, for another priest, for our great high priest, who goes into the sanctuary and is the ultimate sacrifice so that we can once and for all step into the presence of God. We can step with confidence that our sins are covered. He is a high priest who steps into the sanctuary, not doubting, not asking questions, not in need of silence, but knowing who he is truly in God and be willing to sacrifice himself. As we approach the communion table this evening, may we reflect on the ways in which God is present to us, what that presence changes about the way we look at the world, what that presence changes about the way we look at ourselves. The question that the Israelites had been asking 400 years of, God, where are you, was about to be met in Zechariah's nephew and is met tonight, is answered tonight around this table. Let's pray. Lord God, we are sorry and we confess the ways in which we slip into other stories where we believe other things about ourselves, where we believe other things about other people that are not true, that are not of you. Lord God, help us see the story that you offer, the grand sweep of history, the salvation plan as what it is, that deeper, more foundational story, that deeper magic that holds all the mess, that doesn't sweep it under the carpet, that doesn't lull us into a kind of false sense of optimism, but instead speaks of hope, a hard-edged hope that has experienced the world, a hope that comes from a crucified God. Oh God, may you teach us how to be more... truly rooted in that story whether that is through silence whether that is through finding the marginalized and learning from them Lord God thank you for the fact that you took Zachariah's question you gave him the gift he needed and he sung may you take our questions May you give us the gift, whether around the table or something else. And may you lead us to singing. Amen.